Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. And let's just sit in this meditative space as we have today's discussion, remembering that a lot of what we will talk about doesn't appeal to the mind, so to speak. It should, should check out with reason, but its appeal is mostly to the intuition to what in yoga we call the buddhi or the discriminative intellect, a part of us that's a little deeper than our regular comings and goings. So we've been talking about practice and how to practice. And today we're going to add on a few more layers to practice. But before we begin, let's just acknowledge that we each of us are coming into spirituality in a different way. Um, We each of us have different goals with regards to our spiritual practice. We each of us have different conceptions of what this is all about, and we're all at a different place. So that being said, um, the intensity of our practice will differ as we go through it. And in times of your life, you might be practicing very intensely, and other times you might be dabbling. Where you are is where you are. That's just fine. On some level, we each of us were pulled into spirituality um, despite ourselves. So as we were children, there was already a call towards spirituality. And you'll notice little kids, they love anything that has to do with gods and goddesses. You know, kids love the Greek gods. They're obsessed with all those Percy Jackson books. And um, little kids loved Egyptian mythology. They're just very attracted to anything that has to do with the divine. And of course, you know, children, they're great um, yogis. They can do headstands in the middle of the room anytime. Um, they're all Zen masters. I used to teach little ones yoga. And I had a class many different, um, big range of ages. And they get to a certain age where they start thinking, you know, and they're self-conscious and they're kind of freaking out. And then they don't really want to be involved in yoga. But when they're really young, like seven or eight, you'll see them. They'll just love to sit. Kids love to meditate. They're all about it. So on some level, when you were a child, you were already there. You were a Zen master. You know, you were pulled towards pantheons of gods, fairies, like you loved it all. You were very tapped into that imaginative world. So on some level, from the remnant of that childhood experience, there's something in all of us that sees inherent in spirituality goodness. So all of us sooner or later are called to spirituality in one form or another. Call it what you will, you know. And that being said, we're all coming generally from the same place, from the same pull of the moth into the fire, that same urge to grow and transcend and evolve. So generally speaking, we're all coming into spirituality for the same reason, though it's articulated differently at different times of our life. So at some times of your life, you're starting to encounter problems um, in which there aren't any worldly solutions for. So you're seeking spiritual solutions. There are times in your life where you're pressed to wonder if there's more, when you're suddenly impressed by meaninglessness of things, where you wonder if there's more to life than just this or that, and that brings you into spirituality. And of course, there's, you know, those of us who suffer tremendously through loss and better yet, disappointment. You know, we get the dream house, we make the money that we want, but it's never enough. And that disappointment eventually brings us to spirituality, to look for fulfillment. 
So we're all coming at it from a different angle. Once we get started, though, we're in it for different reasons. So some of us are in it for the same reasons that we were in the worldly stuff. Like back then we were collecting Ferraris, now we're collecting crystals, you know, like the dragon hoarding. So on one level, there's a way to practice spirituality without having anything to do with spirituality. You know, like collecting gurus, like you collect Ferraris, doing headstands in the middle of the room, like you got trophies and accolades. So there's a part of the spiritual community that undoubtedly are more interested in the Instagram validation of being spiritual or, you know, like putting it on as a personality trait, you know, advertising their spirituality. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. Wherever you are is just fine. Even that's good. You know, a seed is being planted. If people are going to go out and advertise and make money and get ego validation, that's fine. Let them use God to do it. You know, at least there's a seed there. <laughs> Whatever the compulsion is, it's it's just fine. So some of, some of us are doing that. Then, you know, a rung up. Some of us are practicing spirituality out of a genuine interest, but we're still looking to get high. So we're practicing intensely because we enjoy the feelings of goodness. Rarer still are those that practice to um, get free or to encounter the deepest answers to the most profound questions. So we're all coming at it in different angles. I will present today's lecture as if we are all intensely practicing, like we're all doing it an hour, two hours, three hours a day, if not the entire day, if not our life revolves around practice. I'm just going to give the lecture with that kind of framework. Wherever you are in your path, take what you will, dump out the rest. And if you must dump the baby out with the bath water, sure, that's okay. There will be other days and other babies and other baths. So feel free to take and discount whatever you will. So that being said, we started our adventure last week by saying that we, each of us, have many dimensions of being. So any spiritual practice you do must account for all those dimensions of beings. You must have a holistic, balanced, and nutritious diet. So last week, we established that no matter how good any one food is, if you just had that food, sooner or later, the health will collapse. There will be an imbalance. Similarly, with spiritual practice, you must be practicing a range of different things in order to nourish the different parts of you. In other words, you must approach spirituality from many directions um, to get to whatever it is that you're trying to get to. So that's the first point to make. The second point is that, what is this practice anyway? You know, what does it mean to practice? And we said last week that it's very dangerous for you to see practice as a means to an end. So if you're practicing with the intention of getting somewhere, the tragedy, and you'll figure it out sooner or later, is that you never get there. Because spirituality isn't about adding something into your life. And that's a lot of the trap that a lot of us get involved in in the beginning. It's like we're adding a new personality, a new identity. The old one didn't work. Like Nish the rock star, eh, that was so 2016. Now it's Nish the yogi, you know, look at my beads. There's like a way in which we're trying to aggrandize the self through spirituality. So some of us try to add more joy, add more of this. So we're trying to put something into our lives. We're using the spiritual practice as a way to go out and get it. This is the same error that caused us to seek spiritual practice in the first place. The framework of thinking we can get something out of life by treating everything as a means to an end. 
So sooner or later we realize like, no, that doesn't really work. We don't practice spirituality to get at something. Rather, we are practicing spirituality to uncover what we already have, but have just suppressed by adding on shit. So that's the irony, you know? The reason we don't feel joy in our day-to-day moments, the reason we aren't connected to the fullness of being, wherein lie all the answers to our most profound questions, the reason we aren't there is because we've put on a bunch of things that keep us away from that space. So that's our thoughts, uh, thought constructs about who we are, what the world is, all these dogmas about what we're looking at preventing us from actually seeing the thing that's before us. So you realize that it's not about adding stuff on. It's about getting things off. Um, And with that in mind, you don't practice to become spiritual. You practice as an expression of your own fundamental nature. You practice because you already are spiritual. So it should be effortless to a degree. Does that mean there won't be mornings where you wake up at 6 a.m. The last thing you want to do is roll out the mat? Surely not. Like the the work, the day-to-day work of spirituality is god-awful, you know? But you like it. It's like the kind of pain that you enjoy. There's like a masochism there because you know it's for a higher purpose. And what's that higher purpose? Not to get anywhere, not to be anything more than you are, but just to be what you are, where you are. So that's the second thing we established. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty, the the core of today's lecture. To truly make progress. Ah, again, this trap of progress, but allow me the poetic device. To make progress in spirituality, whatever progress looks like to you, your spiritual practice must be holistic. So in Hatha Yoga, I should say in Raja Yoga, um, the method is generally eightfold. So Patanjali, the great sage who compiled the Yoga Sutra around 250 BCE, by my estimations, um, and it's anywhere between 500 BC to 580, just wanted to be historically accurate there. But, you know, um, this sage, Patanjali, maybe a fictional character, maybe a group of writers, prescribed an eightfold path of approaching the goal of yoga, or attaining yoga. Yoga being the state of connection to your fullness of being. And this eightfold path was meant to cover all dimensions of life and facilitate your yoga. And last week, I told you I would tell you the eightfold path, but move stuff around simply because I don't think the path as it's laid out is relevant anymore for today's time. So we started our adventure with asana. And I stressed last week that all spiritual practice must be rooted in a foundation of physical practice. That's the thing. While all of us have many dimensions of being and we vary with our predisposition, some of us are more emotional, some of us are more mental. The one thing that we all do have, though, and the one thing we have to work with is our body. We cannot ignore that we are embodied beings. The whole point of being in this realm, of being in this dimension of being being in this dimension of being, is to have a body, to to be a body, so to speak. So the point is not to achieve transcendental God consciousness. That's not it at all. The point is to be an embodied goddess or embodied God. The, The point is to experience not just your unity, but your unity in diversity. So spirituality is really the coming back down the mountain 
that matters. There's a Jane's Addiction song that I love, you know, the mountain song. And um, Perry Farrell is just wailing. He's like, coming down the mountain. And there's like a huge guitar bit. And I'm like, that's it. That's, that's totally it. He, in that moment, felt the descent of force. And so in spirituality, you, you meditate and you get to these states of ecstasy and all's one and it's all great. But when you recognize the interconnectedness of all things, that's not the goal of spirituality. That's the beginning of spirituality, as the Buddha said. And so it's important to be embodied, to have a body, because only in having a body that you're able to be in this world and reflect that light into this realm and act, so to speak. And we'll talk a little about karma yoga today. So being in a body means while we all have different dimensions of life, this is the core dimension or at least the foundational dimension of what it is to be in this plane. So that being said, all spiritual progress depends to a large part as to how we're nourishing this dimension of life. There are many ways to do it. There's Tai Chi, there's martial arts like Kung Fu, and I can only really speak to asana as, as, you know, as a yogi, I can only speak to that. But all these practices have, um, and we'll talk about drugs, but all these practices have their root foundation in being able to condition the body such that it is a good instrument for subtle forces. That's the key. Not, not any exercise will do, though exercise is very good. As the occult writer Liam Christopher Thomas says, um, good health in this realm is a necessary prerequisite to good health in other dimensions. And he was saying that you should go out and play basketball with your friends, you know? You should run, you should jog, you should go to the gym. These are just regular exercise regimes that people do to stay healthy. And that's fine, and we should all do those things because it keeps us grounded. But one thing that you get with Tai Chi, Asana, martial arts, is that it's not just an exercise regime for physical conditioning. Yes, it's that. Of course it's that. You get that too. But deeper than that, it's a way to make your body more sensitive to the movement of subtle energies in your system. So on one level, you're becoming more aware of the flow of blood, like you're doing Pashimottanasana and you feel your hamstrings for the first time. And you haven't felt them in years, but now they're there. And you can imagine a new dimension of your life is being added. A few moments ago, there were, there were no hamstring. Now there's hamstring, you know. I love the hamstring analogy because that's exactly what um, progressing in spirituality feels like. There are just more and more things that you're aware of that before you weren't. When you want to see auras, sure, start with noticing your hamstring, you know. When the hamstring shows up for you, that's exactly how the auras start showing up. It's all the, you know, the new sensations. So on one level, you start to notice the flow of blood, you notice the softening and tightening of your body, you're more aware of parts of your body that you ignored, you feel more embodied, you feel more centered. But deeper than that is you're noticing not just the flow of blood, maybe also the flow of lymphatic fluid, you can sense your immunity, you can feel the flow of breath, sure, but much deeper. Sooner or later, if you practice asana every day, starting with 20 minutes, going up to an hour, you'll start to notice electrical movements in your body, subtle electrical movements. And this is what you want. You want to be able to detect what we call in the new age community now energy, but not to use so broad and vague a term as energy, but a more specific term is this, the electrochemical movement 
all forces in your body. That's what you'll sooner or later detect. And you need to be able to detect this. This is your, I would say, thermometer or barometer. It's your instrument. It's your laboratory. That's what your body is. It's your laboratory for spirit. So you want to have as fine and as precise an instrument as you can have. Secondly, this will also protect you. In two senses of the word. One, it's very easy to become kind of caught up in the higher realms of spirituality and then totally go batshit crazy in, in your life. Like your finances get wrecked, you have nowhere to stay, you're living under the bridge. And that happens to people all the time. They just blow out and they're not grounded in the body. So staying in the body keeps you aware of your postal code. You know where you are. You can manage your finances. You can live your life, you know. But more than that, it's... Uh, insulation for the electricity that comes into your body when you meditate. And you know that the body is an electrochemical, electromagnetic system. When you're meditating, you're bringing in huge amounts of voltage into this system. And the fact of the matter is, if the system is not able to handle that excess energy, it will fry out into all sorts of imbalances like neuroses and all sorts of crazy things, back pains, you know, when you get really deep in meditation, the excess electricity, if not properly insulated, can be, I don't want to say harmful, because a lot of very alarmist people in the Kundalini yoga community who are all like, Kundalini awakening, if it happens too fast, you'll go crazy. Not quite, not quite. More like it will just be not as comfortable as it otherwise could have been if you prepared properly. It will be harder to go up the mountain if you don't have the right hiking shoes. That's all it is. You'll just stub your toe a little more. So that being said, you've heard this a million times before. Um, but they always talk about all the yogis, you know, from Iyengar to Svatmarama, they always talk about the house that is set for 20 volts or whatever. If you add 40 volts of power to the house, it's not like the bulbs are going to shine two times as bright. It's more like they'll blow out. So similarly, you do the asana to up your ability to take energy. You know, on a physiological level, um, there are muscles around your spine. And I'm sure you know your spine is the center for spiritual activity. That's where all the chakra are, you know, it's in the energy body, kind of located here in the shushumna, which is the subtle part of your spine. So the muscles around the spine, if they are not properly developed, you will lack the insulation you need for meditation. It's as simple and as physiological as that. If you develop your transverse abdominis, your intercostal muscles, your obliques, and, and the deeper muscles, softer tissue, you'll be able to insulate your spine and that will protect you in meditation. So asana, can't do without it. It's primary. And we talked a lot about how to structure a sequence last week, so we won't do that today. Just wanted to stress that wherever you are in your path, it's always a good idea to involve asana right, right at once, you know? Now, some of you are very physically inclined and you will go really far in your asana practice. The asana practice will be huge for you. I actually recommend um, reading BKS Iyengar's The Tree of Life. Oh, no, sorry, The Tree of Yoga or The, the, the Tree of Yoga because in it, he talks about how all eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga are in every asana. So he really found asana as a way to, you know, it contains all other things. It was his way. And we all know BKS Iyengar, he started asana because he was a sickly youth. 
and his brother-in-law just so happened to be the modern yoga um, father of modern yoga, right? Krishnamacharya. And it just so happened that his sister got him to her husband and he taught BKS Iyengar some yoga and he was really into it. He was really into the asana. He was so into it that it was his entire practice. And he later on expresses in documentaries and interviews that he loves sports. He loves dance. He's a very physical person. You know, he liked being in a body. So if you are that kind of person, if you're very into very kinesthetic learner, you're very into the body, sports, activity, asana will be very powerful for you. And you'll probably develop that a little more quickly than other parts. And there's a temptation to stay there. It's a temptation to stay doing what you're good at doing, you know. And remember what we said last week, it is possible for one thing to do it for you. You know, it is possible, but you really have to be like a prodigy in that thing. You know, you'd be so inclined. And a lot of us are more like balanced across traits as opposed to hyper-developed in one as opposed, you know. So Engar, you know, he was very physical. Now, after you have your asana down, once you start to feel the flow of this electricity, now you can practice your pranayama, your breathing techniques. Um, often, it's not recommended to practice pranayama right out of the gate. Usually in traditional ashram, and in India, very few ashram actually practice asana, but traditionally, if you're in an ashram that practices asana or hatha yoga, your pranayama practice will be introduced to you um, about three, six months, maybe sometimes three years into your asana practice. And I recommend one month to three months. You know, after about three months of practicing asana, go ahead and do pranayama. If you want to practice pranayama right away, go for it. Nothing will happen. It's, it's fine. It's, it's fine, you know. Um, but the reason it's sometimes wise to practice asana for, for a period of time before pranayama, it's just so that you're more there for it. You know, if you, you don't practice asana, you don't have um, the subtle perception in your body to detect flowing energy, then you're just going to sit there changing nostrils. You're not going to notice anything, you know. Nothing's going to be happening. And then you're going to get bored and go off. But if you've done asana for a while, then you do even a little bit of pranayama. You're like, whoa, okay, what was that electricity? Wow, my shoulder is really hot. Or stuff will happen, you know. Um, and of course, if you haven't done asana a while and stuff does happen in pranayama, it might freak you out. You know, at least with your asana practice, your nerves are a little more soothed, a bit more in the body, so you can take it, you know. So that's why the pranayama usually follows the asana practice. But this is your battery. And asana, you know, you devote some time, a little time every day to going to other people's classes, to reading some books like Light on Yoga, and you eventually collect a vocabulary of asana, and you'll be able to arrange your daily practice. Pranayama's the same way. There are many different pranayams. They each um, address different needs. And you can get, again, BKS Angar's light on pranayama and learn a bunch of pranayams there and learn how to do it. Some people like to do it right after their yoga. Some people like to wait 15 to 30 minutes. The Iyengar people always give it a buffer of 15 to 30 minutes before doing pranayama. Some like it in the morning, some like it at night. The Tantra and Kundalini people weave pranayama into their asana. So there's really no one way to practice pranayama and asana. You can practice them together, Practice them at the same time, different times, one before the other, the other before the one. It's all fine. 
you will eventually figure it out. So just like you collect asana, you collect pranayama, and you build, build, build. Now that's going to be your central battering ram. And I will answer about the drugs thing. Don't worry. Um, but that's the central question, yeah? Uh, sorry, the central battery. It will power your practice. So these are your foundations. Then we talked about the niyamas. And last week we discussed the five attitudes you have to have. And the first one is purity or cleanliness. This shaucha or cleanliness, you can just lump it in with asana because it's serving the same function. It's to create a laboratory with which you can experiment um, in the world of spirituality. So if you notice, like if you eat really heavy foods, like a full steak dinner or whatever, and then you go to meditate, it won't happen. You'll be like drowsy or it'd be hard to read a book after eating a big full meal. When you eat a light meal, though, fruits, nuts, vegetables, you feel energized and ready to, you know, read or write or whatever it is. Do something creative. It's like that. Different foods affect your body in different ways. Sometimes you're going to need the grounding. You know, sometimes you'll need a little like hunk of salmon to ground. I don't know. Everyone's got a different place in their spiritual journey that requires different diets. So there is no one prescriptive diet for the yogi. The Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhist eat meat, by the way. The current Dalai Lama totally eats meat as uh, George Furstein describes in his essay on vegetarianism in the deeper dimensions of yoga. Great book. But he talks about all these great yogis who eat meat. Um, I myself am vegetarian, but that doesn't mean that the next yogi is, you know. By and large, a vegetarian diet is generally the most conducive to asana practice and pranayama practice and meditation, generally speaking. And this is the case because when you eat meat or anything that was killed, it often carries the vibration of its death. You know, so when it dies, it feels fear in its final moments. That get, gets coded into the thing and then you eat it and then that agitates you. So really the question of diet is what agitates you and what creates serenity for you. If you like meat and you cut it out of your diet, then that's going to do more harm than good because now you're going to be craving meat. So see, the craving for meat has created an agitation that your vegetarian diet was supposed to get rid of in the first place. Do you see the paradox here? So it's very dangerous to practice prescriptive spirituality where it's like, oh, I have to be vegetarian. Generally in Shaucha though, your hygiene, your cleanliness, what media you consume, what food you consume, it's going to differ with different people and different times of your life. The general core principle though is purity at all costs. And purity is what makes you feel light, what makes you feel good, and what feels conducive to you for your spirituality. And with diet, you know, it falls off. Like I remember I really loved Nando's. They don't really have that here in the West Coast, but I hope some of you have it in New York and Chicago. It's an awesome restaurant. I loved Nando's. I was like, oh my God, how on earth am I going to live my life without Nando's peri-peri and roasted chicken, you know? It's crazy. And then, you know, you meditate and it just falls off. Or like cigarettes fall off. And you don't really have to stop doing them. They stop doing you. You know, they just fall off. So... That's the thing with Shaucha. Now, in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and I must share with you that in, in Hatha Yoga philosophy, 
I think verse 6 or 7 in Hatha Yoga Pradipika says, I will now present to you Hatha Yoga so that you can attain Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga being the goal, meditation being the goal, Hatha Yoga was to prepare you for that. They prescribe six techniques for cleansing, and these are known as the Shat Karmas. Shat meaning six, karma meaning to do or actions. The six actions. There's one of them that is very widely practiced by suburban America, and that's the neti pot. It's so funny. I came to America, I walked into CVS, and I saw a neti pot on sale for $10, and I was like, shit, we Hatha yogis are really doing well for ourselves. That this obscure, um, you know, Hatha yoga is rather obscure, but this even more obscure practice within the umbrella of a relatively obscure path is here in CVS for $10. Oh, what a joke. It's great. It's the neti pot. And that's one of the six practices. The other ones are a little weird. They might scare you. Like they involve swallowing um, cloth to clean the belly, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, at some point in your life, you might engage in them. You might go to India, go to an ashram, put a stick of bamboo up your ass, and there's the anima. People do that, right? But... Don't get caught up in the form. It's not the neti pot. It's not the bamboo hole. It's not the thing you swallow. It's the principle behind it is to purify the body. Yes, there are these six practices that traditionally were used powerfully to purify the body. And yes, our modern day medicine uses a lot of those same practices. So a a colonic, I think it's called, is exactly the practice that I just described. You know, it's not that weird when you're doing it in the clinic. It's a little weirder when you're in the Ganges with a stick of bamboo. I don't know. But the shat karmas are for shaucha, for cleanliness. So whatever you need to do to have cleanliness, go ahead and do it. So that's, I would say, the core of your practice. Now, the next principle, as talking about the niyamas, we'll put the niyamas aside for a while. In the Yoga Sutra, we started with the yamas, the five rules or the five restraints. This made sense in Patanjali's time. Patanjali is a contemporary of a lot of like Buddhist writers. He might have even been a contemporary of the Shakyamuni Buddha himself. Um... And the the thing about the Buddha and his kind of tradition is that people at that time were very ready to take vows, you know? They were just like, okay, I vow to not harm. I vow to not steal. And that's it. They would just do it, you know? Like, honor was a thing. Taking vows was a thing. Now, good luck. Ask someone to vow something, they'll break it. Like, the, the word doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, like honor is no longer a construct, maybe for good, you know, for a lot of cultures, it's good that that construct was booted out of culture. But without honor, without this kind of rigid ethics, it really doesn't make sense to start with the yamas the same way it did in that more Buddhist uh, part of history, where people could start with rigid rules. For us, though, the yamas don't really make sense, nor are they even practical practical for someone who hasn't established themselves in asana, pranayama, and shaucha. If you can get asana, pranayama, and shaucha down, meaning if you can maintain purity in your body, your morality will flow effortlessly from you. It won't be something that you're enforcing or struggling against. You will naturally find yourself um, not wanting to harm others. You'll just feel pure and you'll see the being in other things and recognize your resonance with that being. You'll gossip less. You know, your your need to 
harm others through words or through thoughts will just decrease because a lot of your own shit's being solved now. I mean, it's hard to be mean when you're feeling good, you know? And that's essentially what asana, pranayama, and shaucha will do. It'll make you feel good. And here's the weird thing. It's like, you know, we, we thought we were struggling with things in our mind. And then we cleaned up our diet and we realized, oh, it's just what we were eating, you know? We're like, oh, these compulsive thoughts, these obsessions, this pain. There's so much mental anguish. And we think we have to solve it on the level of the mind. So we pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars on tech therapy. Not to bash therapy. It's probably really great and a lot of people need it. But therapy helps in the dimension of the mind where a lot of the problems that we attribute to the mind are actually fixed in the body, you know? And the body keeps the score and Reiki and therapy and all that stuff. Not Reiki, but Reiki and therapy. Reiki is energy work. We'll talk about that later. But all that stuff, you know, addresses those things on a bodily level, like the book, The Body Keeps the Score. You know, it addresses it there, and then you're fine. So really, when you've got your asana, your pranayama, your eating right, these are your core practices. When you do them, they will naturally bring the yamas and the other niyamas to you. So that's kind of my new take, um, not my new take. Hatha Yoga already did this, and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, it was already kind of discussed. Um, but so you do that, and then the yamas come naturally. But let's think about what the yamas are for. So we already talked about your physical dimension. Pranayama deals with your energetic dimension. So breath is an analog for energy. Pranayama is just how you control your energy. So um, this will help you with your moods. You will realize that your moods, your energy, your mood is a big part of your energy. So when you're feeling kind of depressed or sad, it's because your prana is low at that time. Or if you're agitated, the waves of your prana are short and quick. So you practice a little pranayama and it smooths the waves out. And now there are these nice sinusoidal waves in your chill, you know. So you're, you're getting your physical dimension sorted. You're getting your energetic dimension sorted. Now the yamas deal with your interpersonal life. So we can say this, no matter what your mental faculties, emotional faculties, energetic faculties are, the baseline is you have a body, you've got moods, and you're going to have to hang out with people. You know, so the three core practices of spirituality is deal with the body, deal with your energy, and find a way to live your life such that there's the least amount of drama for you. You know, and that's really what the yamas are for. They're just there to minimize drama in your life. So when you're meditating, you aren't worried about X, Y, or Z, you know? So these are general rules. Don't harm, don't gossip, don't steal, don't... And in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there are more yamas, like forgiveness. That's a big yama. It doesn't appear in the Yoga Sutra, but it appears in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, um, verse 10 or 11 or something, where it's like, um, forgive people. And that's what Jesus always preached too, just like forgive people, just like let it go, let that shit go, you know? And a big part of that was just to bring peace of mind so you could meditate. Now, in the Hatha, no, no, Hatha Yoga, in the Yoga Sutra, there are the four locks and four keys, which Carolyn is doing a vision board for. And, uh, that's got the same effect as the yamas, you know, which is to make your social life good. So let's review them. The four locks and the four keys are, how do we deal with other people? If you meet a friendly person, sorry, if you meet a happy person, your attitude should be friendliness. Um, you should be friends with them. 
You know, that's what you should do. Meet a happy person, be friends with them. You'd be happy together. If you meet a sad person, your attitude should be compassion. Notice not friendliness, right? It's like you got to let them have the space to deal with their shit, but you got to be compassionate. Help them where you can. But beyond that, don't get too wrapped up. You know, isn't that weird? The Yoga Sutra says, make sure your friends are happy. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of very convenient. But yeah, compassion for those who are sad. Um, For the virtuous, mudita, delight. Delight in the virtuous. So this is to counteract jealousy. If you're looking at someone who's really advanced in their yoga practice, you're happy for them. You're thinking, wow, um, I wish I could be that someday, but I'm here now. That's fine. I'm happy that they're there. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to tear them down because now someone's better than me. Confucius said the same thing. He's, oh no, was it Lao Tzu? Lao Tzu or Confucius, forgive me. Their spirits are here. I'm sorry. One of you said, when you meet, when you meet someone who's superior to you, Turn all your thoughts towards becoming his equal. When you meet someone inferior to you, turn all your thoughts towards yourself. Just to reflect as to why you think that about that person. You know, but naturally you'll meet people further along the path. You meet people to whom you're further, whatever it is. Mudita, delight in the virtuous is the correct attitude. Then you've got for the wicked. And undoubtedly you will meet those who are so hurt, are so mired. What's the attitude? disregard. You know, the yogi does not let her state become affected by the wicked. So if you're looking at a video of Donald Trump speaking and you feel anger rising in you, you've abandoned that sutra, you know, because the correct response there is disregard. Does that sound like spiritual bypassing? Not quite, because very little can be done for those intent on their own self-destruction. Even if they're looking to bring everyone else down with them, you can't address that person by fighting them. They only fight you back, you know? In the Yoga Sutra, in Swami Satchidananda's translation, he makes a really funny joke about the monkey and the cuckoo or something. There's like a bird, and the bird spends the entire summer building a nest, and the monkey is lazy. He doesn't do any work. And the bird notices this, and he's like, huh, lazy monkey. But, you know, he builds his, he builds his nest, and then the monsoon season comes. Because in India, there's only two seasons, hot and rain hot. But the monsoon season comes, and the monkey is drenched, and he's miserable. He's, like, cold. Meanwhile, the bird is in his nest, warm, his beautiful nest. And so the bird thinks, I need to give some advice to the monkey. You know, I can help him. So the bird pokes his head out and says, hey, monkey, do you know if you just... Um, build, if you just build a house, you'd be fine. And the monkey said, you dare condescend to me? I'll show you. And he broke his house, you know? In that that sense, it's a self-defense thing, trying to stay away from the wicked. Note this though, fighting evil is very different from fighting evil people. So if there's aggression in the world, if there's wrong in the world, you should go out and stop it. You know, like Arjuna and the Bhagavad Gita, we had a whole discussion on karma yoga one time. But you can still do that by disregarding the wicked, you know? If you have to see them in court, lock them up, sure, do what you got to do, but don't let them get into your mind, you know? So those four locks, four keys, the five yamas, ahimsa, non-stealing, satya, telling the truth all the time, ashteya, non-stealing, aparigraha, non-grasping or non-greediness, and finally, um... Uh, brahmacharya, managing your energy properly. So all of these are ways to protect yourself from drama. You know, so that, that takes care of your interpersonal life. Whatever way you seek to do this, 
do it. You know, so you don't need those five yamas and you don't need the four locks. Those are just two ways of trying to get to a certain goal. Your goal is your own, you know, uh, your, your way of getting there is your own. So as long as you've got something sorting out the interpersonal relationships of your life, that's fine. It could be as simple as I will listen more, you know, I'll just listen to what people have to say. That could be your yama. and That's, that's enough. <laughs> Okay, so we got that sorted. Now we get to the a little more subtle stuff where we each of us have different dispositions. So some of us are very in the heart. So we have a lot of emotional force or emotional energy. And I'm certainly like that. And I grew up in that kind of culture. So a lot of Indians, their spirituality is very devotional. It's very bhakti, we call it. It's very like chanting and singing and... Um, setting up an altar and you give flowers and food to the altar. And that takes the central stage for most Indian spiritual life. I don't really do asana. And this is, this is the core of Indian spirituality. And I grew up in that. My grandfather was a temple singer. So bhakti was all I, I knew growing up. We'd go to the temple and he would sing and he would get into aesthetic rapture. And it, it was more important to study devotional songs written by saints, than it was to study the teachings that those saints left behind. You know, because the tradition I grew up in, um, do, do, um, Saivite tradition, worshipping the god Shiva, the energy of a bhajan or a spiritual song was what we wanted. Not the theory and dogma of the teaching itself. You know, so some of us are like that. And what happened in my case was I started like that. But when you're a seven or eight year old boy and you have to sit up all night, at Sivaratri singing these bhajans, it gets old very fast. And you as a child want to distance yourself away from all things associated to your family. So I very quickly veered off the bhakti path and got very involved in jnana. Like jnana was my life. From age 14 up, jnana was the central part. So what is this jnana? I was um, in Sai Baba's ashram in Puttapati. Sai Baba is an Indian saint. He's got a big afro. Awesome guy. Very freely does miracles for everyone. He'll kill a goat, bring it back to life. Just to make people vegetarian and also demonstrate that it can be done. He's awesome guy, you know. And uh, we were at his ashram and I was 13 or 14. And we were all sitting in this room and there was bhajan. Everyone was singing. People were crying and weeping. And it was great. And I know that that was a Shaktipat moment for me that something happened in that bhajan room that Sai Baba did convey. So I'm sure, I'm sure. It was all so pre-verbal that I don't know what happened. But that day, I felt this um, thirst, this desire to go to the ashram bookshop and buy um, Swami Chinmayanda's translation of the Bhagavad Gita. Chinmayanda is a very intellectual Swami, very smart Swami. And uh, I went and bought his Gita, age 14. I was just really excited to read. I just want to read something, you know. And that's what started me on the path of Jnana. Jnana means to know. Gyan is knowledge. It's the path of philosophy and it's the path of the mind. So this defined my life for a while. It was a lot of reading. It was a lot of scientific note-taking. It was a philosophy degree eventually and comparative religion degree. It was a lot of study, you know. So some of us have that inclination. Um, some of us are very heady we're very bookish we love to read we love to think we love to analyze very rational um, the Spock's in the room right my brothers and sisters of the Vulcans but anyway if that is your call then you will go very far in the path of Jnana 
I'll say a little bit about jnana. There are three steps to jnana, jnana yoga. The first is shravana. This is step one. Shravana means to listen. And remember that a lot of the yogic tradition was oral. So there weren't really books back in ancient India. There were songs, you know. So the first thing you do is listen. In a modern context, that meant read. So the first thing you do is read. You go and get your spiritual books and you read. The second thing is more important, mananas. So after shravana, you do mananas. Mananas is think about it. So don't just read. You got to like dwell on it and think about it. And this is all you're cognizing. I once heard it said, I don't know who said it, um, but someone said, some books are meant to be tasted, some chewed, some swallowed, and some digested whole. You know? So there are some light spiritual books where you read it like four agreements. You're like, ah, oh, it's cute. You know? Sure. And it's huge for some people. It's like cute. And then you read something that's like heavy, like, I don't know, Atma Bodha by Shankaracharya or Kant's um, Critique of Pure Reason or something. You know, some books are heavier and require more mananas. Mananas is like the chewing. So shravana is the putting in your mouth. Mananas is the chewing. This is the most important one though. Nididhyasana, which means digesting, internalizing. So this is step three. This is when you actualize what it is you're learning. This is when knowledge becomes wisdom. So your conceptual understanding becomes a lived experience for you. So this is the highest attainment of jnana yogi. Yoga. The idea of jnana is like this nididhyasana, this awakening or this realization is something you circle around. You know, you, you shravana, you read the books, you hear the lectures, like what's happening now. You contemplate your mananas and then eventually one day it hits you and you realize you don't just think, oh, I'm not the mind, I'm not the body, I'm the witness. You actually wake up to the fact that you're the witness. And it's a profound meditative experience. So jnana yoga is there. One of the five niyamas is svadhyaya, study. You know, study of self. Jnana yoga can come here. Now, study of self has two connotations. In a modern connotation, it means to be very kind of self-aware and journal and know what's going on. That's that's a given in spiritual life. Like you're in spiritual life because you are actually curious about what's going on inside. And you want to explore yourself your body, your energies, your mind, you're less concerned about what's going on out there. So that's a given, right? And I think it's a little deeper than just, okay, journaling, because you're going to be doing that. But svadhyaya, um, sva, the self, adhyaya, the study of, is really the study of scripture relating to the soul. You know, the study of not you, the person, but you, the spiritual being, you, the soul, you, the Atman. So that's why Svadhyaya has a role to play in everybody's spiritual life. Whether or not Jnana Yoga is your path, whether or not you're very rational or heady, there needs to be some time devoted in your day to reading or to listening to lectures or to getting some kind of spiritual framework, you know, to um, kind of support your burgeoning spirituality. I want to say, though, as a disclaimer, your experience and your reading must progress at a certain balance. If you're reading ahead of your practice, you become kind of like an armchair occultist where you're like reading and you think you're growing because you have all this conceptual knowledge and you can quote all these people, but you have no actual experience. You know, and in that sense, your reading can limit your experience because if you read too much without experiencing, without practicing enough, you'll start to impose expectation, um, 
expectations of what you should be experiencing. And if you're looking for something, you miss what's there, right? You know when you're like looking for your glasses in the house, but you never find it because you're looking for it. But if you just kind of accidentally come across, you find it, you know, it's like when you forget a word, <laughs> the harder you look for it, the harder you find it. So in that sense, be careful um, of too much reading, too little practicing. A lot of us suffer from that. Um, and a way to watch out is notice if you're buying books even before you finish the ones you're reading. You know, that used to be my thing. I read like one third and then I get excited and go get that one. So try to finish stuff. And it doesn't mean you can't abandon books midway. You should. There are a lot of crappy spiritual books out there. Um, they have you with the prologue and they suck at page 20, toss it. You know, you have no time for that. You got no time for that nonsense. So don't be afraid to chuck books, but at the same time, you know, it's a balance. So make room for that, for that Swadhyaya. Now, if your practice goes ahead of your theory, this is probably more dangerous, I think. At least an armchair occultist is kind of harmless, you know. They're charming at dinner parties, sometimes mostly obnoxious and pretentious. But that's harmless, you know. Um, the spiritual geek, much less harmless than the effective jerk, is what I'll call them. People who practice but don't have a theoretical framework for their practice, just get power and don't know how to use that power. And they use it for all sorts of nefarious things like boosting their ego, you know? So that's the thing. If you practice yoga, you're going to get power. Whether you like it or not, you're going to have more energy. You'll be able to memorize books. You'll be able to, all sorts of things you'll be able to do. Sooner or later, you'll need the theoretical understanding as to how to use those siddhis. Um, otherwise, you're just going to show them off. And you're just going to, you know, I don't know, uh, make things worse for yourself. <laughs> so Svadhyaya, theoretical understanding, has a very central role. And of course, I'm preaching to the choir here, which is unfortunate. You all know this. Um, but yeah, reading and listening to lecture, it's all very important. Now, the other part, bhakti yoga. This is often seen as the contrarian path to jnana yoga. So here's the interesting thing. As much as I wanted to distance myself from my childhood experiences of spirituality by going into jnana, I was also really into rock and roll. And I think that's what happened when you spend your childhood in the temple next to the Mirdanga player. Because those people, it's a rocking beat. If you've ever been to a temple and seen a Mirdanga player, which is the drums, you know, the drums they play in the temple, it's loud and it's like ecstatic, you know, and that found its way very deep into my soul, I think. So I loved like Sabbath and, and Zeppelin and the Stones. I loved all that kind of hard rock, kind of, not the Stones, I mean, hard rock, but I love that stuff, you know, especially heavy metal. Loved it, ate it all up. Slipknot was huge for me because all those drums, like nine, you know, like it's, like, it's so percussive, binaural kind of uh, polyrhythms. I was like, yeah, it's exactly like what I wanted in the temple. So my bhakti was, was rock and roll, you know, it was, it was music and it was performing in bands and stuff. It wasn't yet attenuated to my spirituality and it was a worldly path. So it was a way for me to like go and get stuff in the world, which I think was great. Like, you know, stuff that a young person should want in the world and go out and get. So that was happening. But the important thing there was by practicing the art, I noticed that it was developing in me a faculty that would later empower my spiritual practice, which is like your intuition, your emotion, your creativity, very second chakra. So whatever art you have in your life, and everybody's got one, 
You know, everybody's got some uh, creative pursuit in their life, whether it's dance or stamp collecting or, you know, whatever it is that is creative to you that turns on that dimension of your life, even if it has nothing to do with the outset, you know, it doesn't have to be kirtan. You know, you don't have to be singing Hare Krishna for you to be practicing bhakti yoga, so to speak. So that's something important too. There must be some time devoted in your spiritual practice to art, to singing and dancing and playing and being creative. This is a niyama too. It's called Ishvara Pranidhana, which is devotion to the sacred, surrender to the divine. Yes, we're painters and musicians all around. It's great. So eventually, when you feel this emotional force and you start to do asana and pranayama and uh, you start to do um, your shaucha practices, you will naturally be playing music or, or painting or dancing for different reasons. But that emotional force that you cultivated through practicing your art gets translated into a feeling of reverence or sacredness for the divine. Because ultimately, the feeling that is evoked by art is beauty. You know, you feel the, and, and jnana, it's truth, right? And John Keats, the poet said, beauty is truth and truth is beauty, you know? But you're working with those two facets of the same thing. In jnana yoga, you're working with the truth. You're working with the father. You're in the mind. It's very masculine. With bhakti yoga, you're working with the feminine, with the heart, with the emotion. It's beauty. So the poets, the musicians, the dancers, eventually, in that feeling of art, right, of, of seeing something beautiful or creating something beautiful or being in the moment of a guitar solo or an ecstatic dance sequence, you feel something that we call reverence, sacredness, or in the yoga vernacular, Ishvara Pranidhana, devotion. And this, you will soon be able to translate into like having an altar and putting out the bowl of water. And it's funny, here I was running away from that, found my way right back. <laughs> it's like an irony, you know, you can't run away from anything, it always catches up. But then you start to do kirtan, you can spend hours doing kirtan. Kirtan is something they did in the evening. So, you know, you, in the morning you did your asana, your pranayama, your meditation, you read your books. But in the evening when the sun went down, there's no electricity in northern Kashmir or whatever, you would get together with your friends and you would just sing kirtan. Kirtan is the repetitive chanting of the names of God. Now, I want to point, in closing today, I want to say this. There's so much more that we can talk about, but in closing... I will definitely do a part three because we haven't even started talking about Nada Yoga or Mantra Yoga or Japa Yoga or meditation yet. We'll do that. We're still on like preliminary practices day. But um, the thing about Kirtan or chanting holy names, as Krishna Das says, and you know, you can check out the Kirtan scene. I'll put some names in the chat. Like you can check out Deva Pramal and... Um, Krishna Das, these are all Western Kirtan or Jay Uttal, you know, they're Western Kirtan singers who kind of popularized this chant music genre um, by mixing it with Western rock sensibilities. But uh, the thing about this kind of Kirtan, Krishna Das says, is the music is like the syrup. The words of God are the important one. So the music is the syrup that helps you take the medicine. But the name is the medicine. So that name, Krishna, Ram, Shiva, even Jesus, those names carry a certain power. And by chanting them repetitively, seeds are being planted. You know, so maybe make some time in your life to experiment 
with kirtan, you know, something like that. Finally, though, in bhakti yoga, it's not really about art. It's about devoting yourself to the divine. And that can mean one of my favorite practices is if anything beautiful happens, like you eat something delicious, you think, ah, how divine, this is for the Lord. Or if you're making love and it's awesome, you'd be like, this is for the Lord. You hear beautiful music or see beautiful art, you're like, this is for you. Uh, Bhakti is very dualistic. Jnana is very non-dualistic. You know, it's funny. And higher than that is a framework that encompasses both. So eventually your bhakti will lead you to mantra and japa. And let's just close there today. Some practices that you can take away with you today is your jnana yoga, your svadhyaya, your ishvara pranidhana, your bhakti yoga. And finally, you know, my favorite practice now, like today, and of course I have my daily meditation and my asana and all that, but my, my favorite thing, my new obsession is japa, actually. And japa is the repetition of mantra um, throughout your day. The Jesus prayer is a great one. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. That the Pilgrim's Progress person talk, not Pilgrim's Progress, Way of a Pilgrim, um, the book he talks about. But you can get, you know, like, and this might not be for everybody, but like a rosary bead, you know, like mala. It's called lotus seed, bodhi seed, rudraksha, all that stuff. Christian rosary beads, all that stuff works. And the way it works is you hold it in the hand and the form is not important, but you play with the bead and you recite a japa or a mantra. Could be anything. And the one that I work with is the many shiva mantras. So you something similar like Om Namah Shivaya, you know, you do it. And then you palm the bead and you keep doing it. And the cool thing about this is you can keep the japa going everywhere. So as I'm talking to you, I have a japa going. When you're waiting in line at Whole Foods, you have the japa going. And at any given time, you've always got a line connecting you back to this moment. So if your mind wanders, if you get lost, the japa pulls you back. And here you are where you've always been. So let's close there. Maybe bringing the hands together over the heart if you feel called. And we'll close out with one final om. Thank you for another incredible episode of For the Love of Yoga. Find me at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish for more meditation and yoga classes. To get in on the discussion, you can find us every Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific with Stay Om Yoga. You find us on social media. And also every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Pacific with Yoga World Heart. Have a beautiful day ahead. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. All right, everyone. Thank you for a beautiful day. Let me unpin. Yeah. As always, I'm going to stick around and we can talk and, you know, if you want to share, it's cool. I just wanted to, like, mention something about what you had said about, um, like, the diet and, like, like, fixing your diet is, like, usually, like, the answer to a lot of things. And, like, like I was pretty, like, like before quarantine, I was pretty like depressed for like eight years. And like, I went to the doctor and everything. And like, 
before like I even found out that like on like um, a chemical level like serotonin is made in your gut they try to like give me pills for it not that like pills are bad but like it was like like I like I was like so like let down when I like started doing my own research and I was like wow like and then the moment I fixed my diet like I'm my problems didn't disappear but like my mood like got a lot better and I was like I was like wow like before even telling me that like to fix my diet like you told me to do that but like I mean that wasn't nobody's fault but it was like a really good like realization that I had that made me like oh wow like it's really all like you can just do it it was crazy thank you for sharing that Christina that's really beautiful because um it's a sign of your deep spiritual maturity that you blame no one. You're just like, they were trying their best. But it is funny that the pills were the first resort. Like <laughs> no, it's ironic because so much can be solved so easily through natural methods. But yeah. I will say, though, the thing about the diet is it's kind of straightforward. It's like clean up your diet. Your mood will improve. And a lot of us are able to do that. The catch, though, is diet for a lot of people is enmeshed in a lot of really weird complexes, you know? So it's yeah. like, it's hard to not eat certain things because there are compulsions that are more rooted in the mind than in the body. Yeah. It's a little hard to do. Yeah, yeah for sure. But asana, definitely. Like when you start with asana, you've already got the rocket fuel, you know? Yeah. It was, it was a good experience because then I was like, it that just led me into like, okay, if I can just fix my like my depression with food like what else can I do and then that's kind of how it snowballed into like this so yeah what else can I do wow I'm gonna remember that that's a really beautiful poignant statement what else if I can do this what else can I do yeah it was great but I am going to go to bed. I have to go get tested tomorrow, but whatever. I'll see you guys. Love you guys so Bye. much. Thank Bye. you. Christina, have a good rest. Bye. Hi, everyone. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you, Madeline. Good to be here. It's good to have you in our family. Welcome. I haven't, I haven't, don't think you've dropped in before. I, I've seen your name somewhere. I don't remember where on Instagram, probably. I take Emily's yoga class that's it she's my best friend <laughs> did you take a class a moment ago yeah i did <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've been wanting to listen to your philosophy classes and i'm really happy that i started today. it's so good to have you Madeline. appreciate it thank you um, I was just going to talk about how similar our, <laughs> our paths are actually, because, um, yeah, with the Bhakti thing, my whole family is very, well, we're not, my parents aren't super religious, but my grandparents all are. And my grand 